You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. We are here at the PRSA International Conference in D.C. uh, with our first guest uh, of the conference, and it is my honor to introduce uh, the man responsible for the origins of social media at DOD. I wrote a case study on it uh, based on an interview he did with Shell Holtz that ran on for immediate release, the Hobson and Holtz Report, which is a terrific interview. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And I'll also have a link to the case study that I wrote from that. Uh, Jack Holt from the Office of the Secretary of Defense, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. I'm glad to be here, and uh, thanks for the kind remarks and for the study because that's, that does help. So um, I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to sit down and talk about uh, what's happened since your discussion uh, with Shell. Um, so um, bring us up to date, if you would, on the state of social media at DOD. All right, uh, be glad to. And, and uh, you know, like I just said, you know, your case study does help uh, because we're one of the things that is is lacking because this is a new environment is some of the science behind what it is we do and what is actually happening out here. Um, and it goes back to something I'd, I I've been saying for years now. You know, when when I relate um, our current environment, and I ask people, what do you consider to be the first high high speed internet? You get all kinds of answers. Uh, but uh, I relate it back to hard surface Roman roads. It was an infrastructure that completely changed Western civilization. Uh, some for good, some for bad. It took them a while to kind of get an understanding of what was actually happening on it. But not only did it empower the Roman government, it also empowered the Roman citizens. The Internet and the World Wide Web today does the same thing. Uh, it is changing the way we live. And as I mentioned with uh, uh, in Shell's interview, we talked about uh, you know whether this is going to be a fortress to be defended or it's a field of maneuver. Well, it's a field of maneuver, and everybody's pretty much acknowledged that. So we need to be looking forward to how we train people, how we how we deal with some of these things. What are the things that we need to understand about the environment in which we now live? Um, a few months ago, I was at a conference, and I was listening to actually it was an Israeli professor who was talking about uh, the, some of the work that he did with the Israeli Defense uh, Forces. And he, he said, and, and I thought this was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant observation, and I've been using it ever since. He said, you know, new media, social media, are not new tools we need to learn to use. He said it's a new environment we need to learn to live in. And that is, that is, that is the truth. This is where we are today. Uh, so we need a vision on how we apply some of, these, some of these things, some of the tactics, some of the tools, because the the public people have have changed the way they do things they change the way they do commerce they change the way they do education they change the way they live their lives the way they inform themselves and with that change there is a change of expectations as well um, so as far as from a from a business standpoint and from a government standpoint there's a reputation management piece of this so there's there's a lot of things we need to be considering in our way ahead um, and those are we're kind of lacking some of the science behind that, even though 
some of it still exists. You know, some of the, the or still exists. Some of it is comes from uh, previous studies in human nature and human behavior and anthropological studies and all that. All that's all well and good. It needs to be updated. We need to have case studies like the one you did on what's happening right now and what it means to us and how we move forward. But you guys have this program at DOD Live called Bloggers Roundtable, right, where you sort of shift the focus each week to another post and um, provide some transparency into uh, the men and women on the ground in uniform who are having these experiences firsthand as a way of sort of creating a transcript of what's going on that people can reference. How is that working out? It's, it, it is working out uh, fairly well. Um, it was a little more robust during the the uh, Iraq War, uh, primarily because there was a lot more a lot more public interest in what was happening out there, and and a lot more controversy about it. And we were able to kind of cut through some of that stuff and separate the political from the war fighting piece of it, uh, and to show people exactly what what is happening on the ground, um, what they how they felt about the politics of it, the uh, you know the. Um, um, you know, the decisions that were made, you know, the you know, the whys of it were kind of, they're important to the public debate, but what is also important to the public debate of is what are the, you know, what are the effects of that? What are the effects of what's actually happening on the ground? Uh, because the military and DOD, we, we go at the, at the, at the request of the president and, and Congress. That's who we answer to. They answer to the American public. But we also have a responsibility to tell people what is going on in our best ability. And one of the things that we noticed is that in today's media environment, there wasn't a lot of uh, diversity of debate in what was happening uh, in the press and in the public debate. So we didn't have anybody linking to our websites. And so we, you know, part of that was our, our problem as well because we didn't put as much money into search engine optimization because we didn't see it was important at that time. We've since learned that lesson. You know, so having the ability to, number one, have websites up there with current and, and, and uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, current and uh, relevant information is one thing, and then allowing people to draw from that. Well, one of the things the Bloggers Roundtable did was put those people together, people who have an interest and a keen interest in what was happening, who had done the research on some of the things that were happening, who had a background in military affairs, uh, on the phone, on a, just a simple telephone call with the people who are on the ground making the decisions to let them explain in as much detail as they want to the reasons behind the decisions. And that was extremely powerful. And then in this new environment, you know, we it's... Uh, it is an online environment. It's a digital environment, and, you know, and those links are that currency. So what's, to be current, we have to be to be linked to everybody else as well. What's so smart about the strategy, and it's something that I've I've now I'm covering in the social media boot camp that I teach, is the way it's integrated into the existing communications apparatus. Yeah. Um, it's a conference call. You know, it's nothing fancy. It's not a social network. It's a conference call. You create a transcript, you get a recording, you get something you can reference back again. And it makes a lot of sense, and I can see from an operational standpoint how you could declassify the information in advance. What I'm curious to know is the feedback that comes back from that posting. I would imagine sometimes you have to give answers that have to be declassified or it requires uh, subject matter experts to provide you with information to respond. Talk to me about that process. 
Well, you know, usually it was the subject matter experts we were talking to on the phone to begin with. So they had the ability to explain you know, in detail, and they knew, they knew what they could talk about and what they couldn't. So they understood the classification problem. So we didn't really have a problem with you know, crossing classification lines because the people who were talking knew what it was they were talking about um, and, and knew, what, you know, knew where their left and right limits were on that. So that all went really well, but they were able to get enough and in, in more in-depth information into that public debate and then allow that to grow. The interesting thing that we saw from that was that as these events and as the as the debate continued, eventually these uh, these topics, which having been told by the press that it wasn't a news story, now became a news story. Now the press was interested, and then when they go to research these efforts, you know, the research this topic, our information was already in the public debate. They were, they were debating from our information. So we got a lot more information into that public debate through this mechanism, which then gave rise to news media stories, which then brought, it, brought things uh, up to a different level. So it wasn't about actually just making the news cycle. You know, one of the things I, used to, I, I like to say is that for most bloggers, it's not about breaking news. It's about breaking understanding. And they were able to put the context, the background, the understanding to these very complex events. You know, combat can be pretty simple. It's like Clausewitz said, you know, in combat, the important things are really, really simple. And the simple things are very, very difficult. And in the environment around combat, it gets very, very complex. The ability to work through those complexities really brought some understanding to the public to the public debate, which brought public understanding out, which then, as this, as the news media started picking up, they came back with better stories. So there was an even there was a greater um, kind of uh, aggregation of understanding that developed from that. But you you bring in a captain or a colonel, somebody, a service member on the ground. You do this bargain roundtable. They're deployed again, and let's say I don't know a month later weeks later, people start asking questions mm-hmm. on DOD Live in the bloggers roundtable underneath the blog post. And now, in order to answer that question, you don't necessarily have that same guest available to right. answer it. So how do you get the answers at that point? How do you, con- go, how do you sustain the discussion? Part of it is, is, and we've done this several times, go back to talk to who's currently in charge of that topic. Now that that captain, that colonel, that officer may have rotated out and moved on to another assignment, but somebody followed him in there. So where are they now? How is how has the history built around how they're making their decisions and having that debate continue, having that discussion continue um, with uh, whoever's currently in charge of that? Um, it's been kind of an eye-opening experience on on many cases to to follow through uh, some of these efforts and, and, and the people who are taking care of some of these efforts. Um, you know, we also ran into a bit of an issue uh, with those that followed on may not necessarily want to conduct a blogger's roundtable interview. Um, so we would have to find ways to, to deal with that. Uh, and it, this goes into kind of where we need to go from here um, you know, because the vision is that that this should be part of the standard operating procedure. You know, and, and right now, 
Um, it was part of the standard operating procedure for General Caldwell and the people who were in Iraq at the time, back in 2006, 2007, 2008. Um, there, there's been a lot of changeover since then, and uh, for most of our efforts in Iraq, it's kind of de-escalated, so there's some normality beginning to, to appear within that environment. Um, but what we need to understand is that this this has the possibility of actually opening other doors for us. So while it is it was a standard operating procedure for, for General Caldwell and his crew, it's not necessarily a standard operating procedure across the board. However, it is more and more becoming an acceptable operating procedure. It's just not standardized yet. That's the kind of the thing, that's the vision, that's where we need to be moving toward. That's the area we need to be moving towards. Um, as I was, uh, and you know, we met out at the uh, Society for New Communication Research um, conference back in the in the spring, and talking with Shell Holtz and Shell Israel and some of the other some of the other folks out there who are on the very beginnings of what we now call the social media environment. One of the things they were saying is that it's normalizing now. Yeah, so what do we do next? You know, and but it's kind of interesting. There's not been not very often in history does does the um, uh, technology get to a point that it opens up and does things like the World Wide Web has done. Um, it not only empowers organizations, but it also empowered individuals. You know, and I go back to the Roman roads. It was a completely it was a game changer for economics. Yeah, and the economics environment within Italy. It allowed Italy to, to rule their world, but it also allowed the Roman citizens to rule their lives. So one of the things, another kind of the correlations I, I like to make on some of this stuff is like, you know, at that time, the common phrase was, all roads lead to Rome. Today, with the World Wide Web, all roads lead to you. Go to Amazon.com. They'll tell you whatever you select, here are some other things that you may be interested in because other people that selected this were interested in these things. They're bringing to you the things that they think are relevant to you. So all roads lead back to the individual. So it's, and that's, that is a bit of a game changer in our communication environment especially, but also in commerce, you know, in government. Um, it is, you know, it, it is, people have changed the way they do, their, they do commerce. Government's changing the way they need to govern. It gives us the opportunity to listen and to truly be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. There's responsibilities in that not only for the individuals, but also for government. One of the ways that um, government maintains order in a bureaucracy is by encouraging individuals to stay in their lane and not to speak on behalf of others. Mm -hmm. Yet when all roads lead to you, uh, you have opinions on things that may not necessarily uh, be things you're authorized to speak about. Right. So how does the military complex cope with that? Well, let me, and let me caveat, and I probably should have said this from the very beginning, is that you know, the comments that I make here are my own, and they're not necessarily the viewpoint of the Department of Defense of the United States government. Um, now, that gives me some freedom to speak. But we also have to realize that with that freedom comes a responsibility. So I may have the freedom to say what I want, but the issue now becomes I've got a responsibility not only to the people who are listening, but also the people to, for whom I work, uh, the taxpayers of the United States, my family. You know, and so I have, to, I have to kind of moderate that. 
So I have to be cognizant of all of those things moving into this environment. Um, I find it, yeah, I find it not that difficult for me because I've grown up that way. My father was a movie actor. He understood that. He understood that when he said something, it mattered to a lot of people. He had a reach that most people don't have. I kind of grew up with that, with that mindset. I understood that what I say affects others. So I have not only the ability and the freedom and the liberty to say what I, what I think and what I feel, but I have also a responsibility to that. And that's another one of the areas that we need to train, not only within our public affairs people, our public relations people, but also everybody within the organization, because this, this touches everybody's lives. Uh, one of the efforts that we have, and I'm trying to get within the Department of Defense, is training at an individual level for everybody coming in. You know, for example, a, a, a soldier comes in to basic training, 18, 19 years old, been on Facebook you know, longer than he has you know, as we've been in the military because he's just brand spanking new. He'll get a block of instruction, for example, on media on the battlefield. He'll get a block of instruction on information assurance. He'll get a block of instruction on, um, on communication and writing, for example. But nowhere does that all, nowhere do we have a, uh, um, a curriculum that ties all those things together because if he's got a blog or if he's got a Facebook page, he could very well be the media on the battlefield. And people who read his blog are now have, now have to understand there is an information assurance piece of that. Is he speaking for himself or for the operation? So, yeah, it, it, we have to be very clear on those things. You know, he's got every right to have a blog. He's got every, every right to say what he's thinking. But we also need to train them to understand there's also responsibility that goes along with that. You know, we talk about operation security. Extremely important because the last thing they want to do is get their buddy killed yeah, or anybody else. So we need a deeper understanding of exactly what that means. And that needs to permeate everybody in the organization. It's not just for commanders. It's not just for public affairs people. It's not just for the people who are quote-unquote communicators because at this point, everybody's a communicator. And we need a little more in-depth knowledge and training and focus on these areas because chances are they're going to represent us well if we give them the opportunity. We just also need to give them the training and the background to be able to do that properly. You know what I wonder? Um, you know, the the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs has uh, acknowledged that you can't win a war with guns and grenades alone. No. Uh, you've got to win uh, uh, not just uh, hearts and minds. You can't even talk about hearts and minds until you've got trust and confidence underway. And trust and confidence really would be not a State Department thing, it'd be a military thing. Hearts and minds would be the State Department. Well, sort of, but it, you know, this is one of the things that, that I think a lot of times, and especially in our, in, our, in our society today, in our environment today, in our, in our industrial age mentality of the way organizations come about, we tend to objectify things. You know, because we talk about, for example, human resources. Okay, it sounds cold, it sounds sterile, it sounds objectified, because what it's about are people. This is all about people being people and understanding that fact. And that's the, the whole purpose of being social. So when we talk about, here again, in a military operation, what are we fighting for? 
and we tend to not to de- we tend to misdefine this a lot of times because we okay so what does victory look like we're not actually fighting for victory we're fighting for peace peace is a human aspect of it and that means we have to have trust and we have to have confidence but it's not one side being stronger than the other it is about finding finding a way to come together to cease the violence so and peace is not necessarily the absence of violence either but it is coming to an understanding that we're all in this together we all have to come we have a shared responsibility here and we need to find yeah what's going to you know it is a constant negotiation what do we you know, what's our role here but if you look at a situation like like Afghanistan unless the people who live there trust us enough um to change things and not split before things actually mm-hmm. hold, um, then we won't have a chance to get there, right? There will be no peace. And certainly you could see how social media could be used as a tool uh, by the military oh, to help win the trust and confidence of the people who live there, who we hope, you know, given the opportunity, uh, would, not, would choose not to follow the Taliban. That's what and we hope. Yeah. But do you do for right now, if you're uh, in the military complex and you're fighting in uh, Afghanistan, uh, your access to the Internet is a hospitality tent. Right. That's it. So do you see a day when something like a laptop or an iPhone might be standard issue and there might actually be training for troops on the ground to be able to use these tools to win trust and confidence? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, um, Which kind of goes to another one of the areas that I've been exploring and trying to work on and helping out with. Uh, and this is an area of knowledge management because that's one of the things these social media tools actually really have a lot of power to do for an organization inside the organization. Yeah. However, sometimes we don't think about this properly. For example, we think about knowledge management and most people who are working in this and, and that I work with have uh, you know, the very, very well-educated, very bright people, very uh, on the cutting edge of things. But you know, a lot of times I see this you know, in the language that they use and in, and in the way they look at things in that here's a solution from us to you rather than looking at what is a solution that the, the guy on the front line, this, this, the, the private on the front line walking patrol needs to have. And as far as knowledge, as a knowledge management concern goes, why can't he have reached back to the entire wisdom of the Department of Defense? Not something that's going to happen overnight, um, but we need to have systems in place. You know, we've got information systems. Where's our knowledge management systems? And, and this is kind of, they have to work together because the technology is going to bring to us the things that we need, you know. Libraries are a knowledge management system, uh, but a guy on the front line in the Argandab Valley in in Afghanistan has got limited access to a library. But he shouldn't have. Uh, there, he, the the technology is there today that you could put an iPhone in his hand, even though it may not be exactly the iPhone, but it'd be an iPhone-like thing. Uh, we've got radio communications. We've got data communications that can be transmitted. But if he's got a device where he can, he can see 
who is the last person, for example, through this village? Who are the decision makers in this village? It may be his first time there, but it's not going to be the first time for everybody. Somebody has been there before, more than likely. But those guys aren't online. Well, not yet. This is where we need to go. This is kind of the future vision, to be able to manage that knowledge as they go through there. He can, and he may not have the access to the, to the, to the knowledge of the guys that went there before him yet. But he should be able to add that information because the technology is there. I mean, for you know, sales tools now use some of this technology. You can say, I just had a meeting with so-and-so. This guy's this is the leader. Here's the model of the village. Here's the leadership of the village. Here's the tribal council chief. It's a, of this tribe. And all of that stuff can be quickly added into, you know, into an electronic device and, and, and then transmitted back to headquarters. Once it's in those digits, it's a matter of now being able to share those digits. You know, the linkages that happen there. So once it's captured, it should be captured, and then it should be able to, he should have the ability to access that from anywhere, anytime, we have, we have any place we can get that, that connection, that communication connection. Um, we don't currently have that today. We haven't done, you know, we haven't built the databases properly. We capture all this information, but it gets scattered, it's not well thought out, you know, we build... For example, we move into task force, and those task force go out there, and they may get internet access, or they may have, they may have an email access. But that system that they get is typically built as an as a, an enclave kind of system that is specifically for them. For that, and, you know, they leave. For example, I was in Afghanistan, and I had an email ad- address in Afghanistan. When I left, that email address stayed there. It was mine. The data was still on it. I could no longer retrieve it. Yeah, and nor could anybody else who I happen to be working with retrieve it. And any of those people that I that followed me in there, you know, the first guys I could turn it over to, but did they turn it over to the next guys? Was there any was there any records management, records maintenance to it? Probably not. Most of that stuff just went away because my ID, my my um, uh, uh, identity management for that for that system stayed with that system instead of being an enterprise type approach. We're talking to Jack Holt. He is the senior strategist for new emerging media at the U.S. Department of Defense. And when we return, we're going to talk to him about how Al-Qaeda is using social media. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. So, Jack, you know, early on we saw things like beheadings online. We saw, uh, you know, many of the organizations we see as terrorist organizations that have been labeled terrorist organizations by the U.S. Department of State using social media to get their word out, using social media to recruit operatives. 
Um, what's the state of Al Qaeda with respect to social media now? Are they are we ahead of them? Or are we behind them? How are they doing? I think um, I think we we've, we've um, invaded their battle space there, um, and I think we've actually made a difference. Um, they would, uh, yeah. They're coming back because they're they're now finding people, and we've seen some articles in the past few weeks in the in the press about, um, you know, about U.S. citizens, um, actually being um, uh, employees uh, of Al Qaeda, you know, doing jihadist work across the internet, you know, propagating their their information, their propaganda. Um, and they're spreading out as well, you know. But they're they're very they're very good at networking, and this is kind of one of the areas that I see we need to be. And we're we're currently there. We're 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 in what I call the churning point. We're moving from our industrial age stovepiped, um, very hierarchical structures into a more network structure. Yeah, and yeah, I. I use this as an example. You know, people start talking about, well, if it's all flat, then who's in charge? Well, you still have to have uh, a hierarchy, and it's what I call a distributed network hierarchy. For example, as you know, just as an image, as an example, uh, have you ever tried fishing with a net? I don't mean like a seining net, but I mean just like actually, like they do in a lot of the you know in a lot of the South Pacific um, islands. You go fishing with a net. You're going out for catching fish. Yeah, and they cast a net. Well, there's a certain way to hold that net. The net has to be weighted just properly. It has to be untangled. It has to, You have to have it in a proper condition before you can actually throw it. And then you have to know how to throw it. Otherwise, you get yourself wrapped up in it, or it ends up just knotted in the bottom of the boat. Yeah, so there's a, there is a hierarchy in how to distribute a network. Now, Al-Qaeda has a very loose organization and very networked organization but I I question whether they have a very good knowledge management system of that network and this is one of the areas where we can if we network ourselves differently and and more appropriately to the environment we will have a distributed network hierarchical structure but the power nodes on that net you know, there any network's going to have certain power nodes yeah, it the power in a network, for example, in a telephone network or an electrical network, dissipates the further it gets from the center. You know, the further it gets from the energy source, from the power source, the power will dissipate. So there has to be power nodes along the way to re-energize that. So there is now a responsibility on it. You know, at the very edge, you can look back and you've got a direct line back to exactly what, for example, the boss said. But others along the line have responsibility to that as well. And they have a responsibility to make sure that you get it and you understand it. So it's a different way of seeing things. It's a different way of understanding the environment that we're in. And it's a different way of communicating that we're, we're, we're not used to. You know, we go from a command and control structure to you know, a command and trust structure. You know, because the command comes down. And I know this from my own military experience. Yeah, I can have a squad, two squads of, of troops out here, and I send them out to complete one mission. I can't be with both of them. 
they're going to do different things. I have to have them trained. I have to know that I've got them. I've trained them. I've communicated with them. I've got them everything that they need. I've equipped them. They're good to go. And now I have to cast them out and trust them. It's what I call casting the net in this case. So they have responsibilities back to me. Yeah. And I have responsibility if it fails and it's my fault and I have to I have to answer for that. I have to fix that part. But I can't be there with them the whole time. So I really can't control it. I can cast them out and then I have to trust that I've done everything else properly. I have to trust that I have cast the net properly. If I have, I'll catch fish. If I have, they'll come back with the results. Um, and, you know, if, if not, then I have to figure out why. Is there a hole in my net? Are we fishing the wrong waters? A lot of things have to go into the next decision on the follow-on. But I have to make one decision first, and that's, you know, I have to get all my stuff arrayed. I have to get my net properly arrayed and laid out. Then I have to cast it. This is kind of the, the same mindset. It's a little bit differently than sitting up on high and saying, here's what we're going to do, and allowing that to funnel down through the separate um, stovepipes that have certain pieces and parts of it that don't talk to each other until it happens on the ground. And that's not a very efficient way of doing things. You know, compartmentalization has its place in some areas, but for the most part, it's not an efficient way to move. It's not, a, it's not an agile way to move. I think one of the things that we're going to find, if we can design the systems properly, that we'll gain a lot of agility in this. Because that is actually kind of the Al-Qaeda model in certain aspects. One of, the, one, of the, one of our problems with that is they are extremely agile. We're not as agile as we could be, um, and we need to be more agile than we are today. But it's going to take us a little time. You know, like I meant before, we're kind of in this churning point. We, the environment's changed. We at DOD have made the decision to change. Um, and we have to now adapt to the new environment. So there's a lot of the churning that has to happen before we can actually say that we've made the turn and we're, we're on the new course. Yeah. We also have to have that vision as well. What, is, um, what does right look like now? In May um, of 2010, uh, there was a flotilla of ships dispatched by the Turkish Foundation for Humanitarian Rights and Freedoms and Humanitarian Relief, the IAH, and uh, the flotilla was sending alleged aid to Gaza, and it was intercepted by the Israeli Defense Forces. And uh, the use of video uh, was prevalent in this raid, more so than I've ever seen in any sort of military confrontation. Um, any thoughts on that and any thoughts on what the role of video might be, live streaming video as a public affairs fu uh, function in military confrontation? I do, um, and here again, it's probably a good time for me to, to restate that you know these are my my opinions only, um, and not the, the 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 opinions or the thoughts or any way construed with the Department of Defense, U.S. government. But in, in in my opinion, in this, yeah, there is a lot of there's a lot of power in that video. However, as they learned with the uh, the IDF forces uh, intervention there with the the Turkish vessel. vessel out of context, it can be it can be misconstrued you know, because one of the there, a lot of people have their own beliefs about what they about watching that video and what they actually saw, but it is lacking context. 
um, in, a, in a lot of areas. Yeah, at the point of conflict, at the point of contact, there was a lack of context. Um, but the Israeli government had already said, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And why we're going to do it. Yeah. And if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Don't really know what happened at the point of contact on the boat. They did everything that they were trained to do, the IDF forces did. They did exactly what they said they were going to do and exactly what they were trained to do. The perception of that has caused them some problems. But the reality of it is that you know they did what they said they were going to do. It should not have been unexpected. Yeah, but, here, but it goes to my point of context. Out of context, video itself can be construed to be what whoever is the first out with the video says it is. We've run into that issue in some of our, our battles with Al-Qaeda because they use, they use um, the information domain, they use uh, social media yeah, as their mechanism for terror. They conduct combat operations to feed their information campaign. We use information to feed our operational campaign. A different, different mindset. Um, because we're after different goals. We're after protecting people, protecting property. They're after spreading terror. So when we look at that, we have to understand that, that there is a role for that. We have to get better at that as well. Now, we do a lot of video. We produce a tremendous amount of video. Uh, we've got the uh, defense imagery. Uh, it's defenseimagery.mil. It's the, the, the defense imagery management office uh, our Ma management operations center, excuse me, DIMOC, uh, within DOD. We used to call it Joint Combat Camera. They've got a tremendous amount of, of images and video up. Um, yeah, our Divids Hub produces a lot of a lot of video, a lot of information, uh, stories, and things like that from the public affairs uh, perspective. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, of video and imagery out there that we collect on a daily basis um, but perhaps maybe we're not using it as effectively as we could or if it, as efficiently as we could so uh, what it, it is here again all about the context uh, a lot of times this these things will get released like the things you'll see on on the divots hub are all released at the local level um, and maybe yeah, and then it's up to the press or up to the individual to say, okay, so here's how this operation went down that I got from the Divids Hub. You know, these are the things they're doing in, in Kabul or Kandahar or um, uh, Marja or who, wherever they happen to be. They can pull these, these videos or these images from that. Here's what's happening down there. And then how does that extrapolate to the uh, Defense Department's overall strategy for this? And, and then uh, extrapolate it back to the administration's uh, goals. What's their vision and goals? So. Well, it, it seems like um, uh, big organizations, big bureaucracies are always going to be at a disadvantage in yeah. this environment because of the declassification process and the speed of the news cycle. Uh, if the news cycle is moving 24-7 and the news cycle passes you by, by the time you get out with declassified footage... Well, it's history at that point, and no one really yeah. cares. Well, you're right. You're right. It is true. 
Yeah, but here again is something else that we need to do in in education across the board. Is sometimes, yeah, sometimes things are classified not for their news value. They're classified for other reasons. For example, it's got personally identifiable information in it, or it's about a location, or it's a timeliness issue. It that information gets classified. It's not about the news value of it. Uh, and a lot of times. Um, it is a matter of actually running to ground what is the truth, what are the facts behind, what are the, what are the verifiable facts behind what happened. When I was in Afghanistan, for example, we had, uh, um, we had, a, uh, I had a, a bit of a, oh, a disagreement, let's say, with, uh, with a couple of reporters who kept coming to me. And you know, for, a, for the period of uh, three or four days out of one week, you know, they, got, they would get a call from the Taliban spokesperson. And they come to me and say, well, the Taliban spokesperson told me this. And I say, okay, let me take that information, and I put it in our operational channels, and then we have to go backwards to see you know, what's verifiable on this. Yeah. And you know, after two or three days, they came back and said, where's the information? You know, the Taliban, you know, the, the Taliban um, spokesperson gets me this stuff immediately. I'm like, yeah. But he's got absolutely no responsibility to tell you the truth. I have every obligation to make sure that you have accurate, verifiable information. So it's a matter of information assurance again. Um, so as we're talking about information assurance, this is now extrapolated to the public. Now, we get a lot of things on release of documents, and or you know these documents have been. Um, yeah, um, leaked it's too easy to fake some of that stuff and for a for the viewing public it's a matter of now wait a minute so where did this exactly come from we don't know we can't verify which is why in the federal government and especially in DOD we have a release of information process it, it gets a little timely and it gets a little long to you know sometimes it takes a while to, to happen but that's for a reason because we need to go go through and verify each step of the way with other uh, ancillary data, the, you know, the verifying and the, and the uh, supporting data, to say, okay, so here is the truth of the situation. Yeah. It's not an easy, the truth is, nothing, is not easy. You know, but sometimes yeah, it takes that, that rigor to, you know, the academic rigor, for lack of a better word, to, and the research rigor to, to actually come down to, okay, here's exactly what did happen. Now, it may not meet the news cycle, but when we're done, we have we have solid facts, you know that that can withstand, you know, the scrutiny. Now, one of the things that we do in public affairs is that we allow those. That's why we have public affairs officers downrange in some of these units, so that they can release information as far down, you know, down at the source, so they can get it out quick. They can talk about what it is they've done in their area. One of the issues we have is that that sometimes is not well networked within the entire larger organization. So the guy down in the Argandav Valley or the guy down in Kandahar can talk about the, the battle that just happened down there or whatever's going, you know, the, the wells they just drilled or whatever's happening in his area that may not float back up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It will eventually, but it may not be high on his on his marks today. Yeah. 
So we lose a little bit of that context. So if we're not networked well together so that we can see how it's all connected. You know, and, that's, and that goes back to how we design our systems and that's a knowledge management effort. You know, how do we bring all of this stuff into, you know, into focus and link not only for you know, what happened, you know, what's on the, for example, on the Dibbids hub that's released at a local level, but how is that linked to and related to what's happening at the Secretary of Defense level or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff level or the Secretary of the Army level or, or, or whoever, wherever. Those are the linkages that we need to now start building. And those are the, some of the things that the social media tools can actually help us do. Um, but like I said before, you know, earlier, you know, this is a digital economy. This is a digital environment. And links are that currency. That's, that's how the ability to link all these things together is actually what builds the network. And that's what we're talking about, is how we're networked. And when we talk about network, we're not talking, part of it is about the boxes, the wires, and the physical network infrastructure that has to, that has to come together. But we can't forget about the fact that the network is people. You know, it is about people networking. We've been talking to Jack Holt. He is Senior Strategist for New Emerging Media at the U.S. Department of Defense. Jack, thanks for doing this. You bet, Eric. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010 in D.C. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On the Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On the Record Online and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On the Record Online, This episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.